With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, revolution in the Ukraine. The government in Kiev does a 180 and tells Moscow to pound borscht. SECDEF brings deep cuts to DOD and brings the army numbers down to pre-World War II levels. And we discuss our friend, the Dean of the House and political legend, John Dingle, who announced his retirement after 59 years in Congress. This and Tell Me a Story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Tuesday here in the nation's capital, which means it is time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Block Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the, he is the former congressman representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, Justin. And to his left, he is the former Floor Chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. And to his left at my 11 o'clock, she is the former uh, House Counsel for Homeland Security Committee in the House of Representatives, former Obama appointee as General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my 12 o'clock across the table, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce, who served at last count under four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished and handsome factual fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And if I can just say hello out in Evanston, Illinois, to Pat and Don and their daughter, Kathy, who I think are listening in. That's awesome. And by the way, don't hit your, on your hand on the table because they came here because they hear, I want to say hi to, boom, Illinois, boom, Pat, boom, yeah. And to my one o'clock on my right side of the table, he is the former executive director of the Maryland Democratic Party, longtime Washington Insider, Carl Thuvin. Hello, Justin. Hello, Carl. Wow, projecting. That's awesome. And to my right, ironically, he is a uh, recognized attorney. He is a longtime campaign insider and Washington Insider. He is, uh, he is Daniel Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hey, we got a big show today. We're going to start off right out of the gate talking about what's been going on in the Ukraine. 
For those of you who do not know uh, about what's going on in Ukraine, if you've been living under a rock for the past week, revolution has happened in the Ukraine, whereas the parliament of the Ukrainian government came together uh, over the weekend and decided that they were going to oust the president of that country. Uh, president Yakovlevich has since gone underground. He is rumored to be somewhere in the eastern part of the country and is still being defiant, but not really openly. Uh, as a result, there have been arrest warrants issued for the president, the former interior minister, and other high-ranking officials in the Yakovlevich government, and that has put the country in a certain mode of instability. Uh, there are so many dynamics around what has been happening in Ukraine, but I want to start with you, Alan Moore. When we look at the Ukraine, oh, I'm sorry, Carl Tubin, I'm sorry, you were right. I promised you before the show we would start with you. Carl Tubin, just from observing what you've seen over the past, what are your thoughts on the Ukraine right now? My thoughts are, uh, when I heard last week that uh, Merkel was, had been talking to the rebels, uh, I have a feeling that it wasn't only Merkel, but it was the, the whole EU. The and president it, of Germany. Right? Yeah, Andrea Merkel. Right. And it, it or Angela out, Merkel. It turned out to be the whole EU and the president of the United States, which was uh, pushing, not pushing, but helping and, and urging these people to do it. The uh, president of the United States got in trouble because when, when Putin looks around and says, how this happened, right away says the United States instigated the whole thing. And President uh, Obama was on the phone last week for an hour with Putin trying to dissuade him of this, of this feeling. Uh, it happened quickly. All of a sudden, the president's gone. The Speaker of the House is president. The Speaker of the House was very honest with the, with the rebels by saying, we're broke, we need help, etc., etc. Uh, the problem, the problem is, is that Russia has a naval base on, in the part of the Ukraine, which is which are people who are sympathetic to Russia. And and the thing is, what is Putin going to do? Is he going to try to muscle his way in? <clears throat> uh, uh, is he going to do something with his naval base? He doesn't want to give up the naval base, of course, because it's on the Black Sea, uh, and that's, that's, that's my take. But I was, uh, again, you know, there's another thing going on with, with Germany, and that is... Well, well, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that in a second. Hold on. Let, let me get to another thing, Carl, real quick. You know, there's, there's so much going on right now, but one of the things that we have to look at is, Alan Moore, is this a victory for the the pro-EU, so I don't want to use the word separatist because that brings up a whole other issue we're going to talk about, but is this a, a victory for the pro-European, pro-Western faction inside the Ukraine? Well, it's definitely a victory in a battle, but there's a bigger war that still is going to play out. We have not heard the last from President Putin. He has got two major levers here that he we talked about last week. He's got the flow of natural gas, which Ukraine is absolutely 100% dependent upon, and he was prepared to invest billions of dollars into this completely shattered, broken economy. He, 
he can easily step back and do do little or none of that. In the meantime, the EU, which in effect was trying to encourage the outcome, um, uh, but not being very overt about it, um, uh, is going to have to step up on the money side. We're talking the need of 12 to 15 billion dollars in the near term. That's the war that that those feed into the bigger war of how this plays out politically over time. And I dare say, um, we don't know how it's going to play out. Just don't write Putin off yet. But Bob Hines. I think it's interesting that um, the, 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 uh, when the Western, uh, when the European Union and the United States, uh, both, they both have approached Putin and talked to him about it, and in effect, suggested that he join them in trying to solve the problems there and make sure everything is peaceful. I I don't uh, know whether Putin will even come close to being helpful, but uh, it's interesting to see that I I think I I commend the Western leadership and the president for, in effect, approaching Russia and saying, let's see if we can't get some solution here that is peaceful rather than some more fighting. Denise Krepp. Back to the naval base that Carl just talked about. It's the uh, it's one of the few warm water ports that the Russians have, and they need it. So that's going to be one of the reasons they're going to be sitting at that table because they need that area to move their men and women out of the out of the Black Sea into other areas. Um, the other issue that that uh, Putin's going to have to face is the fact that there are still a lot of Russians in Ukraine. I mean, this is not a country where everybody sides with, or everybody talks with one voice, and that's why the former leader is where he is right now because he's in a base that is pro-Russian. So Putin's going to have to play because you've got to hold this country together. Otherwise, you're going to see fractionalism within Ukraine, and that's to nobody's benefit. Well, but Dan Lipner, I mean, going off of what Denise was talking about, when you look at the situation of the Russians having a very strategic port for their navy. Uh, in the Ukraine, Putin is almost caught between a rock and a hard space just to that. It's almost, if you're looking at it from a hard liner standpoint, it's almost worth it for Putin to say, look, I'm going to back out of there. I just won't want any part of this. We'll find another port, or can he? No, he, there, is, there is no other port for him to find. This is, this is the only thing in the Russian sphere of influence where they have that particular military influence. As far as bringing that to other interests, we have to segment not just our economic interests, but also the our assuming we have the interest in ensuring a Ukrainian democracy is actually stable and in place. So actually encouraging that at a altruistic sense of making sure Ukraine is stable, that its democracy is actually settled. And it, we have to remember it's still a, a fledgling democracy. This is a former Soviet bloc country that has many years to go before it fully establishes itself. Carl Tubin. Yeah. Uh, it was suggested by the President and by the European Union that the International Monetary Fund would step in also and help with money. Well, let, let, let's talk about the, the, the place where Putin is in right now. I want to get back to that, Carl. It's a good point. We're going to talk about that. Right now, uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't have a large economic base in his own country to be able to start playing around with the economic base in the Ukraine and their fragile economy. Alan Moore, does, I mean, is, is Putin writing checks he can't cash? 
Well, he wrote a lot to do the Olympics. And as I'm thinking about this question of if, if he were to lose some Sevastopol, um, maybe he could convert Sochi into a huge port. He's because apparently we got more snow today than Sochi did. Thirty to fifty billion dollars to do the Olympics. Uh, no, he he does not have unlimited resources. And once the uh, the afterglow of the Olympics goes away, people back home are beginning beginning to look closer and closer at how much money actually was spent at the Olympics and who benefited from that. Well, there's now, if you will, a town. With, with nobody, to, you know, they built a town and nobody's coming after the Olympics uh, to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. We'll see if they come, but, but it's not exactly, a, it's, it's, it's like a world-class uh, place but with, uh, in terms of the mountain, but without world-class facilities, and the Russian population doesn't have a lot of, I mean, the rich Russians don't, don't, aren't, aren't going to go there, they're going to go to Europe, and uh, we'll, we'll see... But uh, if, if anybody comes, I, I'm, 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 I'm guessing that, that the fate of Sochi will be not unlike the fate of some other sites of, uh, of Olympics where a lot of money is lost and high hopes uh, uh, tend to break apart. The, the, the significance of that, though, is that, that, that after the afterglow, I think that, that Putin has got to be very careful back home with where he spends his money and time and effort, and Ukraine is going to be an expensive proposition even to maintain some kind of status quo. The president, he's gone. He is gone. He's in the east somewhere where it's ethnically Russian. The, what Putin is trying to figure out is what are his options. Well, Congressman Al, you had a thought? Well, go ahead. It's, it's, it's tangential to this, so let's... No, no, go ahead, no, go ahead, go ahead. The, the thing that occurred to me is, is Putin spent the 50 billion or however many billion it was for a variety of purposes, a lot of which was national prestige. And he seemed to do it pretty well. NBC, if, if they are to be trusted, uh, treated uh, the, the, the way the games were run very, very well, very complimentary and so forth and so on. And it was, it was I think, a, a feather in the hat of the Russians to almost immediately get caught up in this thing where he is not going to look very nice for a while. Now, we talked, Alan, is, how long will the afterglow work? I don't know, but it seems to me it won't last as long as it would have if we hadn't had all of this problem to itself. And by the way, if you want to call in with a question on this or any political issue, you can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713. Again, that number is 877-662-3713. Or you can tweet your question to us at, at BackroomPolitik, or you can email justin at BackroomPolitics.org. Uh, continuing on with the conversation, uh, Dan Lipner, when when all of this is being considered and the Soviet influence, does this put a black eye on Moscow and the possible influence that Putin might have in the region as a whole? Well, that that's still still to be seen. I mean, it was reported that when the uh, Ukrainian police opened fire on the protesters, that was at uh, Putin's insistence that the president take control of the situation, and that old Cold War mentality seems to have backfired. 
that you could actually just send in the troops. That said, the Ukrainian president, as Alan already mentioned, is, is uh, out in the eastern outskirts of the country. Worth noting, he's there because his flight was stopped. So he is stuck in the country because the, he can't get out. So he attempted to flee and can't leave. But also to note for the $50 billion, that apparently the Russian bear is now a giant animatronic beast that we saw <laughs> in the closing ceremonies. Disney, Disney is envious, I'm sure. Bob, <laughs> I got to get the 75 animatronic bear out of my head right now. Bob Hines, uh, is, is it worth the financial risk? Because let's be honest, the, the Ukrainian economy is not exactly the most stable in the region. They've got a high rate of unemployment. They've got a huge debt load that they cannot sustain long term. Is it in the financial interests of the EU to provide them with additional bailout money on a government right now that's being led by uh, the former speaker in the, Rus- in the uh, Ukrainian parliament, Ale- uh, Alexander Turkoyanov? Is it worth the financial risk to put that money into the Ukraine right now? Well... Let's put it this way. Let's say a few months ago, when uh, the uh, Ukraine appeared to be on the verge of um, uh, making a, an arrangement, uh, you know, in effect not joining the EU, but maybe having a, a relationship there economically, and Putin stepped in and you know, said, uh, you know, well, cut off your oil or your gas. The fact of the matter is, yeah, it's, it's important, I think, for the, for, for the EU to do it. I think it would be wise for them to put on the table anything that they can possibly do within reason. Obviously, you don't want to. Look, you, you, you can't just start pouring money in there because right now the place is just up in the air. It's all everything's undecided. We don't know where things are going. It's probably going to be a little while before we get a clear case understanding of what's going on in, in there. But the fact of the matter is, it's very important. I think for the West to put out a hand to the, uh, the leadership and whatever group it is in the, uh, in the Ukraine and say, how can we help? We have some opportunity to help you. We're willing to do something. You're going to have to clean your act up, but we're here, we're here to help. Denise Krepp. It's in the um, interest to give them money, but the question is going to be, where's that money coming from? I mean, they've bailed out the Greeks. They've bailed out Portugal. They've bailed out Iceland. They've bailed out Ireland. They've bailed out so many other countries. And so, you know, the EU is not made of, of money. I mean, my, my children like to think that I'm the money tree. They don't exist. So where's the money going to come from, and who is not going to get that money if the Ukrainians do? Yeah. Dan Lipner. Well, actually, following up on Denise's point, the, as, as we've learned from all these other bailouts, the piggy bank for the EU has been Germany, and the Germans haven't been thrilled with any of these bailouts. And this goes into a larger question of the Eurozone economy as a whole, that none of this is stable, and there are problems in other places that aren't bordering on Russia, that the economy is the basis for those problems. Alan Moore. Yeah, the, 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 the Europeans are in a real dilemma here, because on the one hand, they did not want to, to stand by and watch Putin uh, exert total power um, by economic uh, force and military threat over the Ukraine, on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, although they presumably like the way things have unfolded in Ukraine, now it's sort of, you, you, they helped break it, so they bought it. 
and they're going to have to find ways. Germany's the, uh, the, the core. The, uh, as, as Carl mentioned, the, the IMF um, would, would probably play the major role here, but that's funded by the West. Uh, it'll mostly be in the, in, in the nature of loans. Um, the real question for Putin is whether he's willing to say, okay, let's let them resolve themselves. Uh, we care about Ukraine because of the port, because there's, they, they've, got, they've got industrial needs and, uh, that, that, that are tied to Ukraine, raw materials, some manufacturing, uh, wheat production, and so on. But, but uh, there's going to take some cooperation, and the government and the and the governance of Ukraine is something to to watch closely because it's not clear who's in charge. I was very interested in the fact that when they went to this chalet, this dasha that that, that the former president had built, filled with luxuries, people didn't break in and, and loot it. Now that showed a kind of discipline that we don't often see when. Uh, presidential palaces and, and, and homes uh, are, are taken, especially after 80 innocents were shot and killed in the streets. So maybe there's some hope that the, that the Ukrainians as a population say, all right, we've got part of what we want now. How do we move forward in a positive way? Um, I don't know the answer, but, but those are some of the questions. I want to bring in real quick, our friends at CNN are reporting a developing story coming out of Caracas. Uh, the, uh, the Venezuelan government has expelled three American diplomats out of Caracas in retaliation for similar actions being taken by the U.S. government here. Uh, apparently, this is being spurred by opposition fighting with the Venezuelan troops. Uh, it is something that the American government has called, quote-unquote, Cuba-like totalitarianism. And that's going to be a story that's going to be developing. We're going to keep our eye on that. Let's get back to Ukraine real quick. Uh, Carl Tubin, you have a thought on the Ukraine? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, the next six months are going to be very, very important. Uh, one of the things that happened is that the uh, former premier, a woman, uh, was let out of jail. And she came and spoke. Uh, the first thing she did is went to a rally in the square <clears throat> and asked the people to stay in the square until we get democracy. Um, she, now with the, with the speaker being made president, is there going to be a fight between the speaker and this woman? Who well, hold on. Carl, I want to hold off on that because I want to, in the next half hour, I want to talk about the internal side of what's happening in the Ukraine. Right now, I want to focus a little bit on, on, the, on the external side of what's happening in the Ukraine because that's a huge question. We still don't know what's happening inside, and we're getting reports right now. But uh, on the external front, when, you know, when we see what's happening in the Ukraine, uh, Congressman Al, you had a thought. Well, I had a thought that spinning off of what Alan was saying about the, uh, the EU and its willingness to fund things. It seems to me that after World War II, pretty quickly the United States came to see itself and the rest of the world came to see us as the world leader. And the longer we were the world leader and the longer we led, it seems to me the less others were willing to see it as their responsibility to step in and lead. Well, now we're in the situation where we just don't have money running out of our pockets anymore either, and uh, it seems to me it's time for them to step up, and they're very reluctant to do it. 
But, but, but then he's crap. They were reluctant, you know, back in the mid-90s when Yugoslavia imploded. I mean, it was NATO, and I, I mean, I can remember being on active duty and watching us bomb the daylight out of, you know, a couple places in Serbia because the Europeans weren't doing it. So th- this reticence to actually do and protect their own backyard has been going on for 20 years now. Uh, that's, yeah. that's what I was intending yeah. To right. make my point. right, yeah. but but we but we have a situation right now. I mean, somehow calling this a possible fuse point for what could be the beginnings of a new Cold War between Russia and the United States. Alan Moore, we had uh, the Foreign Secretary uh, uh, Dmitry Medvedev uh, talk about a situation. He basically called this a quote unquote armed mutiny in the Ukraine. There's pretty much sticking their flag in the ground saying, look, this is our backyard. Did America overstep its boundary in dealing with the Ukraine? I don't think we can blame this on America or give credit to America. <laughs> there are those who want to say, oh, way to go, President Obama, we got one here. No, we didn't. This is, well, probably before long, we're going to be hear more, hearing more rumors about how we led from behind. This thing unfolded in a week. I mean, there, 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 were, there, were, there were demonstrators in the streets for several months. Being led by a heavyweight boxer, by the way. (laughs) And then there was a horrendous miscalculation on the ground in Kiev when the the order went out. We don't know where exactly it came from, whether Putin had a role or whomever, that, hey, you guys need to step in and clean this stuff out. They attempted to do that, ran into more resistance than we thought. We all saw the images. It looked like something out of of the, the stage set for Les Mis. Um, and, and these guys didn't go away. They started throwing rocks. They were fortunately not armed, by and large, or they would all have been massacred. Um, and and uh, they, they threw Molotov cocktails, and they, and they threw rocks. And the police were thinking, wait a minute, do I really want to be shooting my fe- fellow citizens here in Kiev? They got nervous, especially after people started dropping and would be, were being carried off. And all of a sudden, the next thing we know, there's, there's talks about, about agreements and compromises. And then the president flees. I, don't, I think we were all surprised by that when he disappeared. He, yeah, he, he wanted to get out of the country, apparently. All he got was, was somewhere up in the, in the, in the, north, uh, the, the northeastern part of, of the country, the, the total ethnically Russian part of the country. Um, but, but this is still unfolding and and uh, the, the one thing that hasn't changed, though, is the fact that the economy there is a basket case, and they've got a lot of debt that's, that's coming due, and they need a lot of help from somebody. And if the West doesn't step up, then shame on us, the West, and Putin will then step in and say, here I am, ready to save the day. The West talks a big game and, and doesn't show up. Here I am with money and natural gas. Let's put this back together. Yeah, but Alan Moore, staying with you for a second, in, in, a, in, in a continuing effort to show its inability to govern a foreign policy, this administration has tripped yet again. Secretary Kerry came out and says, after everything and the involvement uh, of Putin and the Russian government in the Ukrainian question, Kerry comes out and says, oh, we want to work with Russia. Did he... Did he trip on this, or is this the right thing to say at this point? Well, I think that, that what we don't want is, is to have this be a new line between the U.S. 
and Russia. And in this particular case, the EU, even notwithstanding their failure to step up many times in the past, it's in their neighborhood. And they have a, a physical, geographic vested interest that we simply don't have. So it's, it's a different dynamic. I think this might, again, be a case where we're trying to, you know, to, to make, make uh, the best out of a really difficult and complicated situation. But I don't think he overstepped by saying we want to work with President Putin on this. You have to work with Putin. Okay. It, seems, it seems to me to be a good thing to have said. Now, if, if it turns out that it doesn't mean anything, no harm done. All right, before we go anywhere, I've got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion on the Ukrainian question. We're going to talk about the politics inside of the Ukraine and what's happening in Kiev. It is, it, is a, it is a fragile situation, even as we talk. We'll cover that. By the way, you can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713, if you want to join the discussion. Or you can tweet any questions to us at Backroom Politics. Uh, or email me, Justin, at backroompolitics.org. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee it. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me, breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
And we're back here live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Again, you can join us toll free, 877-662-3713, or tweet your questions at Backroom Politics. Uh, continuing on the discussion on what's going on in the Ukraine, it's a, it's a completely fascinating situation. We, we've talked a little bit about the external effects and the involvement of, of, of Russia in what's been happening. But let's look inside what's happening right now. What started off as a smaller demonstration against Russian involvement in the Ukraine being led by former heavyweight boxer uh, Vitaly Klitschko, who, who was a very intelligent human being in his own right, but I think in this case he may have taken a couple of uh, right hooks to the head too much. But when we look at everything that's going on, some of the players in this, You've got the former president who now has charges against him. There is an active warrant for his arrest in Ukraine. Uh, he has now been accused, and a, the warrant has been submitted to the International Crimes Tribunal in The Hague uh, that, uh, that basically said he has been involved in very serious crimes against uh, humanity inside the Ukraine. Um, if... if uh, Tokoyev were to get arrested and captured. Uh, Alan Moore, I'll start with you. Does, does, does it make sense to bring him in front of an international crimes tribunal, or is this a Ukrainian problem that needs to be handled by what remains of a very fragile Ukrainian justice system? You know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Those things become show trials and, and massive uh, uh, security challenges. Whenever they whenever they do it, although it's a matter of national pride, I, I, I don't I, I don't know that the priority though is on bringing the president back to charge him because what what are the charges um, that murder in the streets if if they can pin him on that that's a that's a challenge though in in a in a in the middle of a conflict stealing from the state no doubt but but hardly a kind of a war crimes type. Type conversation. I, I think. I, I think also that when we think about what was going on in the streets, much as we tend to like to think it's political or Russia versus the West, it was fundamentally economic. The the economy there is a disaster zone. Unemployment extremely high. Governmental benefits off, and a lot of stealing and wealth accumulation among the elites, and and that is an important ingredient in what people were that and and, and some uh, some reduction in civil liberties um, was was at the heart of this. But this is the problem. Anytime we we ha we see a revolt and potential revolution. Can the new person deliver some economic goods to the country, to the population? Uh, and, and the answer is, it's really hard. We don't know. Somebody's got to put up the dough. Then you've got to have an infrastructure that can distribute and give people something to build some hope on. Those are all the sorts of unknowns that, that anybody who's going to try to run for office, the, you know, the parliament and trying to lay out a pathway is, got to figure out how do we make ourselves credible? How do we not overpromise? How do we put into place a system that will step by step both keep the, 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 the country relatively happy even as they see some levels of improvement? It's a monstrous challenge because the, the economics are so bad. But we, we now start talking about 
a situation which the interim president of the Ukraine, uh, President Alexander Tokoyanov, uh, Tokoyanov has basically come out and said uh, that he's warned of the dangers of separatism following the ouster of uh, Yakoyevich. Is separatism a real situation right now, Dan Lipner? Is that a serious concern for the Ukrainian people that they've got to deal with? It's still a giant unknown. Obviously, there are the ethnic Russians versus Ukrainians, which is a is an ongoing is an ongoing issue. But the going to what Alan was talking about, as far as the people feeling they have a voice in the state and bringing in other global issues, um, unfortunately, I have to celebrate Hugo Chavez as far as talking about how well he handled another poor country, but making the impoverished people in the state feel involved. The Ukraine is kind of in a similar situation. Making sure you have a state where the leadership is not stealing, which is absolutely concerning. The president of Ukraine had his own private zoo on his presidential estate, which is a, a level of arrogance that I, I can hardly imagine for a democratic state. Seeing what that devolution will lead to, assuming it's a devolution, but the fact that it's moved on to seemingly a very democratic move, that the parliament is actually what moved to instate new leadership in a very democratic process, this is, suggests good things for what's going to happen in Ukraine, as good as good can be in this bad situation. Denise Krapp. Okay, well, let's go back to the trial. Do I think you're going, to, you're going to hand this over to the United Nations? No. Uh, you know, we saw what happened in Serbia. Those cases have been going on now for 15, 20 years. So there's no success with that model. The only ones who would like that would be the Africans, because the Africans have been saying for more than you know, several years now that it's only the African cases that have been going to the United Nations, not everybody else. So they would be pushing for it. With regards to the internal politics of what's going on in Ukraine, let's just be honest with what's going on right now. It's snowing. It's cold. You've got to feed your people, and you've got to make sure they're warm. So those are going to be the primary concerns right now of any leadership, making sure that they're warm means making sure that LNG stays on. So if you have to start cutting deals with the Russians, you're going to start cutting some deals with those Russians because you need that LNG, unless you have an alternative source of energy. And given the fact that it's still late February, I don't see any alternative. The other problem you're going to have is the food and making sure that you keep paying for the food to come into this country. Those two have to remain stable in order for you to have a democratic administration. If you have a democratic administration, you're fine, but you have to focus on the necessary goods and items right now. Dan Lipner, go ahead. I don't disagree with that, but in a country that is a democracy, nobody likes being held hostage. And cutting a deal with the Russians just because you need the heat to stay on is not going to make anyone happy. That's actually going to destabilize the situation even more. Then find out where the alternative energy source is, because it's still February, it's still cold, and nobody's going to have anybody freeze right now. Well, we haven't heard, we, we, the one thing we have not heard, and, and, and this is from several sources uh, in Kiev, including the BBC, CNN, and the Washington Post, we have not heard of any wide-scale humanitarian issues being drawn up as a result well, I mean, I mean, let, let's be honest. This this is not the Central African Republic. This is, in fact, a a fairly civilized uh, and developed nation. Although the the economy is fragile, it's got a solid line of communication between the West and the East. It's got stories like that would have come out. I would have thought right by now. But you're seeing the stories. The stories are that the coffers are dry. So if the coffers are dry. 
who was paying the bill. Well, okay, I, I, I see where you're going. Now, now on that note, we should announce that uh, yesterday the EU and uh, our Department of State announced that there were going to be wide-scale across-the-board talks in Kiev that representatives from the World Bank, the IMF, as well as State Department and EU officials and uh, World Bank officials will be in Kiev discussing financial bailout, which has not made the Russians very happy. But it seems like there's a flow of money going into Kiev right now, according to several sources that we've seen on the, on, uh, on the news uh, on the news wires. Carl Tubin. You know, first of all, I think I think what you've got to realize, and I just wrote down, the president stepped up and put sanctions on 20 people who could not come to the United States, 20 of their government leaders who could not enter the United States. That's number one. Number two, the EU stepped up. And I think it's, it's incumbent upon them now, as you say, to meet in Kiev to help them solve some of these monetary problems and, uh, and, and help them uh, survive. And we don't know, we, we have no idea where this thing is going to go in six months. We, the there could be political instability if, if, uh, if this woman, I wish I could pronounce her name. Yulia Tumianchenko. If she decides to run against, and the speaker decides to run for president, I mean, it could all blow up again. No, no, that, I mean, that's true. But uh, one of the things I, I, I want to address, I'm going to put, take off my moderator hat for a second. I want to address something you said, though. You know, before we start patting Foggy Bottom in the White House on the back on this, okay, he did put sanctions on some of the Ukrainian officials. He also put sanctions on civilians in response to the whole situation to look bipartisan in this situation, which to me, how do you sanction a riotous mob? That's my question. If he had not done what he did, and if the EU had not stepped up, this thing could have fallen apart. Okay, wait, 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 Alan Moore first, then Dan Lipner. I love that we've gotten to a point where a show of strength is is refusing to allow certain individuals to come into our country. Having said that, I don't believe that the president needed to or should have been assertive and aggressive here. This was something that played out on the ground in ways that none of us could foresee. And, and uh, in terms of the U.S. and its view of the EU, I will remind everybody that just about 10 days ago, we were, re we were watching with uh, different levels of interest, amusement, horror, that a very senior State Department official said, F you to the, U to the EU for its failure to step up, even as we were trying to figure out what to do and then events on the ground went in ways that, frankly, none of us were anticipating. None of us can sort of claim credit for. Uh, and so far, we're, we're amazed by how calm it has been, in part because the military stood down, the police stood down, the president left town after, the, after 80 people were killed in the streets. And... And, and so we're all still trying to figure out what's going on. Putin was over in Sochi, sitting up in the stands watching the Olympics, and, and no one, everybody's still trying to figure out what now. The U.S. is trying to figure, the EU is trying to figure, Putin is trying to figure, um, and it's these outside 
forces that are going to play a major role, and they do need to talk to each other because, because they have different levels of interest and abilities to, uh, to contribute. Dan Lipner. Well, I'm personally still kind of shocked I haven't heard anyone credit this uh, grassroots uprising to George W. Bush's freedom agenda. Uh, I've, I've been waiting to hear that for a while. But uh, I actually have to agree with Alan. So throw it out and attack it. Even though nobody brought it up. That's what's called a straw man. No, but... but Boy, isn't that a straw man. No, but a, a straw man, while it might be, is still, still the argument that, yes, there are global affairs that have nothing to do with us. There have been people pissed off on the streets of many different countries. We saw the Arab Spring as we're watching in Venezuela right now that the dare I say, the adroitness that the Obama administration has handled all of these situations for all of the cursing that has been thrown at it from the right, the, the new world order is very complicated. It is not a bipolar wor- world. It is much, much more complicated than simply saying we oppose what the other guy is doing. Bob Hines. In less than three months, the Ukraine is going to elect a president. The 25th of May. It's already been set by the legislature. Right. There is the question that the, the thing that I think is going to be most important is in those 90 days or so, what kind of a political structure begins to develop? The parliament, obviously, right now is the uh, the only organized body that seems to be working. Uh, but you've got to find you know you're, you're going to see I suspect parties begin to develop. Uh, I think that the former president, uh, that the woman whose name I cannot pronounce, uh, when she... But he uh, can. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're talking about Yulia Tulyamachenko. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Good old, good old Tulia. Yulia. 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 Did he is, spend all last night yeah. practicing yeah, these practicing. names? <laughs> yes. You've been doing wonderfully. Yes. Comrade, you're doing well. What is interesting is when she spoke... To the to the uh, to the uh, the, the uh, maiden group, you know, all that everybody in the square there. She was not as a, even a, as a former president, president who was thrown in jail illegally, more or less. She did not get a great big uh, hurrah, and, and it's what, what which surprised me. I thought she might. It, it, no, no, matter, absolutely. It shows that it shows that there's probably nobody. Uh, Right now, that appears to be someone that people can coalesce around. And I th- and I the next 90 days is a very short time to get a political structure in case. So let's hope that it, they're able to do that because if they can't, it, it, they may descend into some kind of a chaos. Well, I, I can tell you right now. I hope it doesn't happen. No, 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 I absolutely agree with you. But I can tell you right now, you know, looking at the players that are involved inside Kiev, you know, you've got uh, Toyomashenko, you've got, uh, you've got uh, Tukrinov, who is the current interim president right now, uh, we still haven't talked about the role of heavyweight boxer and nouveau revolution leader Vitaly Klitschko. And there are several other players that we haven't mentioned. But what it does show, I mean, what we're failing to remember right now is the fact that this quote-unquote democracy is only 10 years old. This came about after the, the 2004 quote-unquote Orange Revolution, in which several of the key players, where, you know, including Yulia Tumyashenko and the ousted president, Turkoynov, 
they were allies in this orange revolution. And Alan Moore or Dan Lipner or anybody around the table, does anybody see what the differences or the similarities are to this versus 2004? Is this a completely different country than we were 10 years ago? Dan Lipner? There is no evidence that this is going Aside from the protests that just occurred and the shootings and the, the murders that just occurred, the fact that the protesters have taken the executive residence and have chosen to lead towards, not raid, not pillage, not set ablaze, to lead towards of the executive residence to show the kind... The Which kind I hear the tours are really pretty and really nice. They're, they're impressive. And to show the kind of stealing from the state that has occurred from the former leaders now is impressive. There's no sign. There's Absent a third-party action, and this is what we are all waiting for while we're talking about the Russians, absent a third-party action, this will devolve into the kind of chaos that we've seen in other parts of the world. This will, You're saying it will or it's unlikely? It, right now, if it's left to their own, own internal devices, it looks like this will be a relatively smooth democratic transition. Denise, you disagree, and then Carl. I disagree. I, I think a lot of it is going to be whether or not, or actually... What happens to the former um, head of state? Is he handed over or not? Or does he stay within the Russian enclave of Ukraine? If they don't hand him over, there's going to be a fight. Let's remember that the Ukraine is it, it, a little touchy because of certain things that happened during World War II and certain things that happened after World War I. This is not an ethically homogenous area. These are folks that hate each other and hate each other for reasons that go back more than 100 years. So the Russians in Ukraine hold up, there we go. But Denise, but Denise, here's where I'm going to disagree with you. Because, again, the divide of the Russian side of the Ukraine and the pro-Western side of the Ukraine, that has been evident since 2004 and even pre-2004. But now they have a former leader, and do they hand over? But I have to believe, okay, I have to believe that even with the turmoil of 2004, we look back, that was what everybody outside of the Ukraine was looking at going to be a total crap show, that it was going to be violent, it was going to be many deaths, it was going to be a humanitarian crisis. It turned out the entire world was surprised at the civility of the Ukrainian people and coming about and saying, look, let us do this without violence. We're smart, proud people. We can do this. And now we's- we're seeing the same thing again. And it dis- but it descended into what we what it just got kicked out. But but what I what I will say though is, 18 people, out of that entire mass, although unfortunate, is not a huge number considering what we've seen in Tahrir Square. It also for example. Started, it also started peaceably. This is the that's a something worthy of noting. A peaceful protest that until the state acted with weapons was going on seeking exactly what they got, the removal of the president. Just because it was peaceful doesn't mean that there's going to be unity anyplace. That's the thing that concerns me. Carl Tuvin. You know, democracy is tough to handle for some people, especially some people like the Ukrainians and other people behind the Iron Curtain, the old Iron Curtain, who didn't know democracy. These people wanted freedom, and they got it. Now, whether they can hold on to that, whether they can have a, a, a smooth election and rally behind the new president, 
that's still a question mark, or will they will they go back to some of their old ways? So you know, if the uh, well, I'm I'm hoping. I, I mean, as an outside observer, I can tell you right now, I, I'm hoping that it does not descend into total chaos. We, the, the, the global community is hoping that we're not going to see a downgrade into what we saw in, God forbid, Tahrir Square in Egypt. What we're hopeful for is that cool heads will prevail. The, the people that are leading this are, are largely some Western-educated, some are pro-democracy in its truest sense, regardless of the involvement of Russia or the West in this, the, the Ukrainian people are still a proud people that I hope will take cooler heads and govern themselves accordingly. Dan Lipner. Well, bringing in what you mentioned about Tahrir Square, the, the contrast with Egypt and, as Carl mentioned, that democracy is messy and it takes a while to learn. And the real question that needs to be answered, and it's only going to be answered over time, is protection of minority rights. And this is minority political rights, minority ethnic rights, whatever that might be. This is how democracy works. And even in this country, we occasionally have problems realizing that the other side needs to have a voice. And seeing how that evolves over time is really the question. Well, and the Denise. issue here, though, is Ukraine. I'm a little skeptical about comparing Egypt to the Ukraine because you have differing political issues that happen there. In Ukraine, it, it's more ethnic. It, it's not going to be as religious. It's not going to be uh, the military versus the uh, the religious Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, that, that's its own separate problem in, in Egypt. Whereas in Ukraine, you've got a history of being, you know, one of the Soviet republics. Before with the Soviet republic, we had some interesting problems in World War II. Before that, you had a whole, you know, just kit and caboodle of, of ethnic problems. And you have to go with what Carl said. These are folks that are not used to having a true democracy. I mean, the only ones that have truly gone straight democracy have been the Latvians and the Lithuanians and the Estonians out of the 15. The remaining 12 haven't exactly been perfect pictures of democracy. The majority of them went straight to thugs. They went straight to autocracies. Ukraine did kind of sort of, you know, something nice back in 2004, and then we went straight to an autocracy. Can they truly get into democracy? It'll depend, and I really think it's going to depend on whether or not they hand over the former head of state. I, I, wow. I, I, I don't think, I think you're putting too much emphasis on the brain to justice of Tukoyev, or Tukoyev versus them wanting to move on to the next chapter in Ukrainian history. I, I, with, with the amount of people that are in the Ukraine that have been Western educated and have been exposed to, in large part, Westernized democracies and with, like you said, Latvia and the other Baltic republics that are kind of in the same area, there's a lot of precedence to show, hey, there is cooler heads that can come out of this. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there on, on this particular point. Um, but, and, 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 and here's why. The, the former president is in Russian, uh, Russian culture, Russian-speaking areas. Presumably, before long, if not already, he will be in Russia. That would be my hunch. Whatever Putin decides to do, I can't see him giving this guy back. And, and, I, and I say that because... <laughs> he has a bunch of other people are in the in the uh, on the borders of Russia who are 
who are autocrats in former Soviet states who are struggling for, for some level of, of uh, independence and so on. And Putin does not want to be seen as a guy who throws over his former friends, gives them back to the local populace so that he, they can be tried, show trial, hung, who knows what. I'm guessing the president will, will the, 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 the ousted president will disappear. The, the, the key person here is Putin himself and what he's willing to do. Uh, he's had way more success than he should have in dealing with the West in Syria, in Iran, and I'm concerned about whether, I don't think he's going to go easy into the night when it comes to Ukraine. Paul Hines? I agree that this, this, the former president is going to be a continuing problem, and it's, the thing that bothers me the most is, as long as he is out and about, and I think he will get to Russia, and he will be a constant thorn in the process that is going forward in Ukraine as they try to become a more stable society. And I think that that's going to be a continuing problem. It's not going to, I don't think it's going to go away, and it's going to make it more and more, more difficult than we would hope that the country is able to find a stable, structured government without having an, an internal uh, mafia crowd uh, still trying to undermine the government. Carl Tuvin, last word. I don't think that Putin wants him in the Soviet, in, in Russia. I think he's been an embarrassment to Putin, and I think he's not going to allow, allow him to come. The only way he's going to be caught is if this new group sends people into the other part of uh, uh, the Ukraine and they find them and bring them back. But the next, the next time we might hear from him is when he's dead. Wow. Uh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> we hope that's not the case, but interesting. Okay. With that, we're going to take a break. Uh, we're, we're going to take a break. It's a happy hour here at Chili's Back Room. That means we're going to order our martinis, our Jack Daniels, our drinks, cut open our cigars, and light it up for the second hour of Backroom Politics. When we come back, special guest, our friend Dakota Wood from the Heritage Foundation. He's going to be joining us talking about the big announcement coming out of the Pentagon. DOD cuts like we haven't seen in decades. It's going to be painful, folks. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Again, you can join us at 877-662-3713, or you can tweet at Backroom Politics your questions. And I'm, I'm getting a what? I did. I just did. 877-662-3713. Thank you. You want to moderate this thing, buddy? Please. Take my, take my job. Good Lord. This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind, 
They've got Highland Scotches. They've got Isla Sky Scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. here live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics as Al continues to tear up the studio. Joining us, joining us as he does from time to time, he is a retired Lieutenant Colonel U.S. Marine Corps. He is former congressional candidate for the 2nd Congressional District of Oklahoma, and now he is a senior fellow with the Heritage Institute or Heritage Foundation is it Heritage Foundation or Heritage Institute? I get confused. Yeah, Foundation. Foundation. Anyways, Dakota Wood. Hi, Dakota. Hey, it's good to be back. Good to have you here, boss. It is Foundation. <laughs> Heritage Foundation. Correct? It is the Heritage Foundation. That's right. <laughs> I, I call it Jim Demint's house. So anyway, uh, on that note, uh, Dakota, we we saw recently uh, within the past uh, two days where. Um, 
Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel has proposed cuts in the military that is just really cutting deep. You're talking about $75 billion over the next two years with deeper... Eye-watering. What's that? Eye-watering. I mean, mean, you're talking even deeper cuts than $75 billion if sequestration returns in 2016. Uh, You're talking about a reduction of 440,000 active duty troops uh, or a reduction to 440,000 from 520. Dakota, just on the initial take, this looks like a huge restructuring over DOD. How big is this? Yeah, it really is a huge thing, and uh, and the Secretary Hagel was actually putting the best possible spin uh, on the situation. If you noted in his address, he was saying that uh, they're essentially ignoring a budget cap authority levels that were dictated by uh, sequestration, uh, coming in at what that level was, but then asking for an additional $26 billion uh, next year, and I think $36 billion or so the year after. The five-year projected amount being $115 billion more than what sequestration would allow. So the force that he outlined is basically premised on monies that the law doesn't allow him to have. So the, 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 the terrible story he was telling with all of these cuts is, is actually a fictionalized best case predicated on Congress coming through with money that by law they're not supposed to be providing. Uh, what he did say in his remarks is they actually have a, uh, a worst-case scenario that is fully informed by sequestration levels. And in his speech, he indicated what that would mean, uh, taking half of our cruisers offline, uh, canceling production and retiring uh, Air Force aircraft uh, to greater extent than uh, what, what they were looking at, taking the Army from that 440 uh, to 450,000 level you mentioned, down all the way down to 420, deeper cuts in the uh, uh, Army uh, National Guard and the Army Reserve. I mean, it's just a horrible story. And uh, I actually felt uh, a fair amount of sympathy for the Secretary uh, because all he's doing is reporting back um, the work that the Defense Department has done to try to make the best case possible for this pile of goo that's been handed to him by Congress and uh, the White House. <clears throat> I mean, it was those guys two years ago, via the failure of the Super Committee, uh, that resulted in sequestration that the Defense Department is now having to deal with. I mean, it's just a horrible story, uh, but it's a story that was, uh, that was made by Congress and by the administration. But, hey, Dakota, but when we look at the announcement by Secretary Hagel, it, it seems, at least in my view, that the biggest loser, the biggest hit went to the Army. Is there reasoning behind that? Yeah, as they uh, look at the geostrategic landscape, uh, and if you remember, uh, the White House and the Pentagon have both talked about this uh, pivot to the Pacific, you know, reorientation to the Pacific area. There's a lot of water and a lot of airspace uh, halfway around the world. And uh, one could make the argument, and this is the argument being made, that we need more air and naval capabilities, and you need fewer army forces because we're you know, finishing up uh, two decade-long wars. Uh, nobody has any appetite for any kind of manpower-intensive uh, you know, counterinsurgency or stabilization kind of operation uh, that would occur anywhere in the world. And so they're taking risk in ground forces to preserve funding for naval and air forces. 
But you know, w- one of the things though that I that I look at Dakota when when we take a look at all this, uh, you, you know, it, it almost seems like we're making a serious strategic track change from the old Cold War levels. I mean, we're bringing the Army down to pre-World War II levels. Is that a strategic threat to our national security? As some I, I, I th- yeah, I think so. Uh, throughout the Cold War, I mean, up through the 90s and into uh, 2000 or so, uh, the, the basic argument was let's have enough military capability to handle two major regional contingencies uh, simultaneously or near simultaneously. And as funding became, you know, squo- uh, squeezed a bit, uh, they went to, well, it's offset a little bit. Maybe we can handle one uh, handily, hold in place another threat, and then we would swing our forces around to, you know, dust off whoever the other opponent was. What the secretary said in his speech yesterday was that this budget uh, will result in a military that is only capable of handling a single uh, MRC or, or major regional contingency. Now, what that means in terms of your threat analysis is uh, everybody out there who sees himself as a competitor uh, to the United States is going to say, if the U.S. gets embroiled in a fight, that means the rest of the world is open uh, for you know us to do whatever we want because the United States won't have the ability uh, to sortie enough forces to handle a second contingency. So it creates a strategic vulnerability in our portfolio, portfolio, and and then I think it emboldens uh, enemies or competitors to be more aggressive in areas where we can't be present, and that's just a bad news story. By the way, if you have a question for Colonel Wood uh, on this or any strategic issue, please feel free to call in 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your question to at Backroom Politics. Denise Krep, you had a question. Well, I, think, I guess, you know, the issue I've got right now is how are you going to downsize 80,000 and, and where are you going to make the cuts? The last time they started doing these risks, there was a huge hit within the 03 and the 04 population, which then rippled forward 10 to 15 years, which meant that you lost a lot of folks. So if you were the person in charge having to cut the 80,000, where would you do this? What would be the strategic steps you would take to make those cuts? And by the way, before we go, Dakota, uh, for those mm-hmm. of you guys outside the Beltway, RIP is... RIF, which is a acronym for reduction in force. <clears throat> Sorry, yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, each of the services will handle it differently. Uh, some will will uh, increase um, the scores, for instance, that a soldier or a marine or airman would try, would have to achieve in order to qualify for promotion to the next rank. So they will tighten up promotion criteria meaning that you would have few, fewer people that would achieve those ranks, and then they would just wash out of the system. Uh, the Army has already announced they're having performance review boards, and they'll be looking for early retirement. So somebody who, say, is you know, two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through their career, uh, those packages go before boards. Uh, an assessment is made, hey, we don't need as many of you guys anymore. Uh, so we're giving you an early buyout. Uh, so that's one way to handle it. Another way to handle it is to reduce the amount of recruiting that you're doing. So instead of bringing in 30,000 guys a year, you go with 25 or 22 or some reduced number. So if they have a couple or three years uh, to affect these cuts, they'll make promotions harder and wash people out. 
They'll look for early departures, either by you know paying folks to leave early or, or providing for early retirement, and they'll reduce the uh, the inflow of of new personnel uh, by tightening up standards and just having not having as many slots available. But Dakota, you know, I you know when we when we listen to Secretary Hagel, it almost seems though, even according to the Defense Department's own press release on this subject that there is even some dissension in the ranks among senior defense officials under <coughs> Secretary Hagel. Uh, in, a mm, defense yeah. department, in a Defense Department statement uh, asked to define the increased risk, the DOD says one senior advisor expressed it simply, quote, if the force is smaller, there's less margin for effort, or mm-hmm. less margin for error. He continues by saying, quote, let's face it, things are pretty uncertain out there. That doesn't send a real strong message to the rank and file in the in the military right now. No, I, no, I agree. I mean, the secretary at the very beginning said it's a world growing more volatile, more unpredictable, and in some cases more threatening to the U.S. Uh, two realities, he stated, uh, were that American dominance on the seas and the skies and in space can no longer be taken for granted. And also that defense spending is not expected to reach levels projected in the five-year budget plan. So they're taking reductions in troop strength and infrastructure. They're terminating and delaying modernization programs. And they're slowing the growth in military compensation to get uh, a smaller force that they say is still going to be quite capable. Uh, But he was very pointed in saying that even though the smaller and more capable force is what's going to result, it's only going to be capable of handling a single uh, contingency. So, again, you're taking strategic risk in the short term, uh, betting that you're going to be able to turn things around some years down the road and that the rest of the world somehow is going to remain quiet enough to allow us to do this, uh, this reorientation. So, yeah, there's a lot of blowback from inside the building. Uh, if you uh, listen to the follow-on comments by the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, it was interesting uh, that he said or emphasized that this was a fiscally driven uh, exercise, that this budget was, 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 uh, was greatly informed by the fiscal environment. So it, it, it's not informed or driven by strategic requirements, because if we were funding to that and you wanted a posture that allowed us to address national interests globally, uh, which is where we need to be, uh, then you wouldn't be having, a, wouldn't be seeing these cuts. So, I mean, it's just, it, like I said, before, you know, it's a mess. And what, and what I find really frustrating about this is that Congress dictated the funding levels. <clears throat> the building or the Pentagon and the Secretary are coming back and saying, this is the military that you get for that funding levels, and this is where we have to take cuts because you won't allow us to do uh, to take cuts in other areas. Congress is now coming back and saying, well, no, you can't close this base, you can't cancel this program, you can't reduce the National Guard, you can't, you know, cut in strength. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it's our own government saying you have to do X. Uh, the uh, responsible agency come back and says, okay, I got that, here's the plan to do so. And then the initiating, you know, branch of government comes back and says, well, no, you can't do that either. So, I mean, if you're Secretary Hagel, what do you do, you know? Yeah, good point. Good point. Congressman Al, you have a question. Well, a point. You know, there's always a tendency when something like this happens to blame immediate people, you know, the Secretary of Defense or what have you. The fact is, Secretaries of Defense have been warning of this at least as far back as Leon Panetta uh, and maybe before that. 
Uh, and the, the, the fact is that the things that were done that had brought this about were done several years ago, and they were done largely by Congress. And even the, even the White House has been limited by uh, the, the amount of money that Congress gave and, and the, uh, the, the, the freeze that they did on spending. So that if you wanted to pull a guy out who, who did this and set him up and, and throw darts at him, you've got to go back to somebody who's probably not even around now. Uh, and getting out of this means we're going to have to backstep out of some of the cuts that we put there. And by we, I mean the right wing of the Republican Party, the, uh, the, the Tea Party people who forced all of this on us. And now we're in a situation that they simply could not understand at the time, and I don't know that they can understand it now. But if, if we stick to, if they stick to their guns, we can't get out of the mess we're in now as a result of their actions. Alan Moore. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of a couple things. One, we, we fell all over ourselves slapping uh, each other on the back uh, about a month ago when we, when we came to an agreement um, for a year and three-quarter um, level of spending. Um, we can blame it on one group or another, but for a while there, everybody was in a circle saying, kumbaya, we, we, we're not going to have another budget fight, we're not going to have another shutdown. We've also seen an administration talk about, we have brought the deficit down more in the last couple of years than in the history of the world. Um, and then, oh, but by the way, you made us do this, and we've got another $56 billion we want to spend on new stuff. The fact of the matter is that we are spending way beyond our means, and we have to make difficult decisions short-term and long-term uh, in, in trying to bring ourselves back closer to some kind of equilibrium. And there's no free lunch when we do that. I'm not being critical of this administration or the Defense Department uh, over this new proposal. And as Dakota points out, they want they this this uh, proposal requires additional money that isn't even uh, allowed for in the, in the budget. This is tough stuff, folks. This is hard decision. This is what the big boys and girls do when they when they get into uh, into politics, and now we're faced with some hard decisions. Congressman Al. This is not what the big boys do. This, this is what the guys on the Hill always do. <clears throat> if you want to call them big boys, I think they're all little micro boys anymore. But this is, this is, this, this is a Congress who, when the post office department said that they were going to have to give up Saturday delivery, immediately rushed in and found the money. So, that, so in the age of all the electronics, email, voicemail, portable telephones, and what have you, the Congress says, well, we certainly can't take away Saturday snail mail. You know, so you've got a Congress that is inconsistent, uh, irrational and unreasonable. 
Denise, and I, and I, all right. And I don't disagree with that. The big boys and girls I'm talking about are the ones inside the, 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 the administration who are given a number and are, and are told, what are you going to do with this number? And they say, this is what we're going to do. There's no free lunch here. And, and then the Congress will come back in their whiny, complaining ways, I'm sure. Um, but, but, but what Hegel did is what he had to do. Here was the amount of money. This is your budget. What are you going to do? He said, this is the best I can do. I don't They'll yell and scream, you. and we'll sort this out. I don't disagree with you, but if we don't approach this whole fiscal problem in a totally different way, as it, we, you know, defense popped up. So we, we, we just took a big hunk out of it because it was there. The fact is, until we deal with entitlements, I've been accused of sounding like a Republican in the past on this. Until I'm stunned. Deal, I'm stunned, un, Congressman. Until we deal with entitlements and those broad, very expensive issues and begin to deliver some bad news to the American public, which Congressman likes to do that, but until we do it, we're going to continue to take whatever program comes up and savage it. And it happens to be the Defense Department's turn in the barrel, but it's going to be something else next time and next time. And, and, and we've got to go back and get at the cause of the problem, which is largely the entitlements, or we're going to be nickel and diming every program we've got. But, I mean, Dakota, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about the Congress and the big boys playing in the Pentagon mm -hmm. and the micro boys playing on the Hill. The reality is we haven't even seen the political crap fight yet because in the proposal, the Secretary of Defense and the Defense Department is calling for a round of base closings and realignments. Right, right. Basically, we're yeah, bringing for, back for, the Black Commission in 2017. Yeah, for many, many years now, the Defense Department has said they have an excess capacity of about 20 or 25 percent in installations. So those require dollars for maintenance, you know, people to upkeep. It means that you have to have your force spread over a wider area, it's just grossly inefficient, they've said we need to close these things. Well, no member of Congress wants to lose a base or a military facility in his district because it's money that comes in, it's local jobs, uh, it's uh, prestige. I mean, there are a number of reasons why they want to maintain these things. So, you know, here you have a great case where the, the Defense Department says uh, we are spending more money than we should on excess infrastructure uh, this is an easy, you know, area for us to attack, and Congress won't let them do that. So, um, you know, I, I would say just echo a point that was recently made that if you look at the defense, if you look at the federal budget as a whole, and you look at the breakout between non-discretionary and discretionary spending, and you see where most of our money as a nation goes, it's to the non-discretionary accounts, it's for entitlements, social programs, subsidies of all kinds of, uh, of all sort. And so when Congress looks at where to take those uh, cuts or to reduce spending, uh, those are the political third rail. They're just completely off limits. So you go to discretionary accounts, and the biggest bogey there is the Defense Department. The defense guys salute smartly and say, aye, aye, sir and it's the less contentious uh, element. So, you know, I mean, the reality is the Defense Department is having to pay the bill for deficit spending uh, where the majority of that deficit spending is in areas that are currently politically untouchable. 
okay, before everybody has a stroke here around the table for crying out loud, uh, we got a couple more quick questions before we go to break. Dan Littner, quickly. Uh, well, actually, well, first noting that the Defense Department is 57% of the discretionary budget, but I actually do have a question specifically how much the, the proposed defense budget is in defense of some of these government con- or military contractors and big-ticket items. F-35 is defended in this budget, and it's $160 million per plane, and mm-hmm. multiple other projects are being cut to defend the F-35. From an actual standpoint of being able to utilize this equipment, where Quickly. does that stand? So well, I, 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 cut to save the F-35. I, I think it's imbalanced. I, I think um, that our Defense Department or community has placed uh, an extraordinarily large bet on a single platform uh, that will constitute almost the entirety of our air superiority capability. Um, just from a military planner standpoint, I think it's a bad approach because if anything goes wrong with that aircraft, a software glitch, premature metal fatigue, uh, some unplanned for structural weakening, I mean, just anything that goes wrong, and you have to ground that fleet, we've got nothing. Uh, the Navy recognizes that that's a problem, and that's why occasionally you hear them making noises about continuing the purchase of F-18 uh, Hornets, or uh, Super Hornet, I guess, these days. Uh, but I think it's, in a strategic sense, a strategic planning sense, it's a bad bet to place all of our air eggs, you know, on, on a single type model series. Um, additionally, it's uh, been um, um, sub-optimized because you have three different services with three different requirements all trying to use the same basic platform, and it means that none of the versions are the best that you could have in that particular area. So there's a whole other background discussion that kind of goes to the F-35 program, but I agree with you that committing $400 billion dollars uh, on that particular program at the expense of so many other things is, is a bad call strategically. If you note, the Army's canceling the ground combat vehicle. The Marine Corps is stepping back from the amphibious combat vehicle. Uh, the Army's number two acquisition priority now are boats after they uh, somehow solve the uh, joint light tactical vehicle problem. It seems kind of a weird thing, but if you're the Army and you want to prove that you're relevant in the Pacific, maybe you need more boats. So there's a lot of things that are out of whack, uh, but you have a lot of congressional interference, again, where you have constituencies, you have defense industrial base that are producing things in certain districts, and that certainly influences the decisions that are made by the Defense Department on uh, what's procured. Carl Tuvin, real, real small, real quick. I was, I was in the armed service at a hearing of the armed services committee uh, this morning, and right away they started talking about battleships and helicopters, and the fact that uh, you know it was senators looking into their own constituency and saying, mm-hmm. we need helicopters, we need the, the ones we have were 13 years old, we need new ones, and uh, another. Senator, talk about battleships. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, right now, Dakota, in this proposal, you're talking about the Navy would be able to maintain 11 carrier strike groups. Uh, you're talking about the, uh, the, uh, they will continue to buy the two new destroyers and attack subs per year. Looks like the mm-hmm. Navy is really banking on this deal. 
Yeah, in some areas they are, but they also took a massive hit in the littoral combat ship program, the LCS program, from 52 yeah, down to 32, I believe. That was largely viewed as a waste of time to begin with, wasn't it? Well, but that's a separate topic. I mean, whether you think the program is good or not, it was a ship count. So if you want to field a surface Navy of, you know, whatever the current number is, 300, 313 uh, ships, and you get to build up to that, uh, these holes in the water count toward that total. So if you're going to reduce from 52 to 32, you just lost 20 ships uh, that would have provided a presence in certain areas of the ocean. Whether or not it was a viable platform, it was, uh, you know, combat capable, if it could actually perform the mission it was called upon, you know, it, again, is, is another discussion, but it does come down to a hull count. Uh, the big deal with uh, submarines and with the destroyer really does have to do with the industrial base and that if you aren't producing a certain number of platforms, whether it's an airplane, a tank, or a ship, then there's nothing for that uh, very small, we've had a lot of consolidation industry to do, and they have to start shedding their workforce because they just, you know, that you're not bringing in money. And, uh, and once you lose that workforce, you lose the talent and the skill and the knowledge of how to keep these things going. So right now we've got one shipyard that produces uh, submarines. You have one uh, plant manufacturer that uh, produces tanks in the entire country, and uh, there is some thought to a strategic capability of maintaining that kind of uh, capability in our inventory. And by the way, for full disclosure, those two ba those two depots that you talked about are owned by General Dynamics, my former employer. Hey, uh, Dakota, last question, real quick. <laughs> I, I gotta I gotta get this plug in. It almost seems like the one who's almost laughing the hardest and could be the beneficiary of all this, ironically, could be the Coast Guard. They're going to see more and more emphasis on their ability to protect the homeland. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, the homeland is sacrosanct, right? So if you want to talk about homeland defense, homeland security, uh, nothing, you know, nobody better than the Coast Guard. You look at what goes on in the Caribbean, and, uh, you know, drug trafficking, arms smuggling, uh, human trafficking, you know, all those approaches to our uh, ports, uh, coastal cities. I think the, the Coast Guard is, is going to come out pretty well with this. Uh, I think they've got their deep water problems behind them. They've got some national security cutter, uh, I, I think, is in pretty good shape. Uh, so the Coast Guard should actually do uh, pretty well out of this. Well, one could say it's about time. The, 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 <laughs> that's the one that's been sucking hind tit for decades. Family <laughs> show, Connor. Family <laughs> show. <laughs> hey, wait, you want to poke a stick at that sleeping bear there, Alan? Come on. Hey, uh, Dakota, as always, we really appreciate your insight. Great time for us. When are you going to come down and smoke a cigar with us? Oh, uh, hopefully next week. Okay, good. Very good. You're always welcome here. Dakota Wood, Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Dakota, thanks a lot. Great. Hey, good talking with you guys. Take care. All right. We'll see you. Uh, when we come, okay, Bob Hines, go ahead real quickly. We're already at 530. Doesn't this discussion just indicate how screwed up we are when everybody knows what has to be done? We have to restructure a little bit on the entitlements. We have to find some more revenue. And... We have a bill that uh, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee is prepared to drop in the hamper, and it's just too bad that the Congress and the administration, fundamentally the administration, is just unable to get their act together. Another talk, another time. Good point. By the way, time to go to break. When we come back, we're going to pay homage to uh, the dean of the House of Representatives. He is the 
Honorable Congressman John Dingell, he announced his retirement this week. We're going to have a few minutes in honor and talk about the greatness that is John Dingell. This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to talk about a, a good friend of ours, somebody who's been very generous with his time and, and, and a great source of, of many, many stories here around the table at Backroom Politics. Uh, it was announced over the weekend that uh, Congressman John Dingell, uh, the uh, senior dean of the House. He served for 59 years in the House of Representatives, representing the good folks of this great state of Michigan. Uh, he announced his retirement. He will not be seeking re-election after this Congress, which ends in 2014. 
it is, it, it, he is somebody that if you follow politics at all, you know the name, you know the man, but nobody has been closer to John Dingell, at least around this table, or from anybody that I know in Congress, other than our very own Congressman Al Swift. Congressman Al, he's a good friend of yours. Yes, he was. I remember when I came to Congress, I wondered, would there still be any giants? Uh, you know, the Sam Rayburns and the what have you, and the people that I'd heard growing up over, over uh, many, many years. And uh, little did I know that I would end up knowing, uh, personally, uh, one of the greatest. In fact, a man who, who a, a Republican colleague said was probably one of the ten greatest congressmen ever, ever to serve in the United States Congress. So uh, yes, I'm 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 uh, I'm sorry to see him go. He's 88 years old. Uh, I I, th I think it's it's good for him to finally be able to get into a less tense. A less stressful kind of uh, position, but uh, while his his body has grown old, his mind is still sharp as a tack. If you sit down with the man, you just kind of walk away awed at his knowledge, knowledge and wisdom. I mean, you know, we did a uh, an exclusive interview with uh, with Congressman Dingell uh, about four months ago, and he was very generous with his time. And in that interview, you get the impression, Congressman Al that uh, the fight in him is still there. The stories of John Dingell just going off on people and just being a, a true powerhouse in, in Congress uh, have spread over decades. How at, where's the truth and where's the legend begin? Where's the fine line? Well, John is, is, a, is a guy who, a lot like Lyndon Johnson, would use many, many techniques to persuade you to what he wanted you to do. Uh, and if he could scare you into it, that was easy, and he would do it. You know, so if he, if he could come around and put uh, he, he six foot uh, six foot four, I think three, something like that, he come in and put his big, big arm around you, which kind of enveloped you, and uh, he could suggest things, and you would tremblingly agree and walk away, and he'd say, "Well, now that's in the bag. Now I go, now I'm going to work on the hard ones." the ones that really don't agree, and then, then he starts persuasion, and he had many, many, many techniques that he used. The ones where uh, he was a bit of a bully boy uh, made the news, uh, made the, 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 the grapevine, but the fact is he was ever so much subtler than that because you can't just bully boy your way through the Congress. You know, and uh, so so he he was a marvelous technician and an ability to do that. And he did one thing that other giants like Dan Rostenkowski would never have lowered themselves to do. He would go out on the floor and talk to every single member. He would talk to them whether they were junior. He would talk to them whether they were Republicans. He would talk to anybody, and he would retail his issue, and you never saw Dan Rostenkowski retail anything. Uh, he, he worked from pure power. Now, Congressman, Congressman Al, you know, when, when we look at uh, the legend that is John Dingell, uh, and, we, and his announcement of his pending retirement, that's got to 
not sit well with folks like us who actively promote compromise and civility in Congress, even though he was kind of a, a strong personality, he was never afraid to work both sides of the aisle and actually was influential on several pieces of compromise legislation throughout his term. And not afraid to work with people that Democrats weren't supposed to work with. He was highly respected among business. Uh, now, he often did things that business didn't like, but they would, they would always say that they got a hearing. Uh, he understood with their point of view. Sometimes he didn't agree. Frequently, he did agree, usually in his office with them, and little changes got made in legislation that would, because he never wanted to hurt business at all. What he wanted to do was to stop business from, from, from playing games with things. Uh, and if then he could come in and say, look, this, this proposal that you've got, this proposal that you've got is going to do this, this, and this that you may not have, have realized. And he would look at it very carefully. And if, in fact, he agreed with them, he'd change it. So, so business even was, was a fan of uh, John Dingle. Um, Alan Moore. So I, I think about, about uh, Mr. Dingell, and, and I remember fondly some times where I was the staff director of the Senate Commerce Committee, and we had to go into conference with the House Energy Committee, and so my boss, John Danforth, and John Dingell would be the co-chairs of, of these meetings, and it was my first opportunity for a couple of years to watch him uh, up close. And, and er, prior to that occurring, I remember I would, would read stories about how he was totally in the pocket of the auto industry, he was always resisting auto safety provisions, whether it was mandatory seatbelts, airbags, higher fuel efficiency requirements, and so on. And and that was that was a narrative that was that, that floated around out there uh, because he did represent those interests. But what was so interesting to watch up close was how he walked this fine line between nudging the auto industry along and pushing them forward without burning his bridges, even as he outraged the Ralph Naders of the world, who, who were always against anybody who wasn't absolutely pure in their ideas. So we got mandatory seatbelts, we got airbags, we've got higher fuel efficiency standards. Um, we, a lot got done, and it got done because John Dingo understood that you had to take bite these things off one piece at a time. If you jumped all the way in, you would, you would not succeed and you would not faithfully represent your, your constituency. He really, and, and he really understood the need to get what you can while you can. He, he didn't mind twisting arms. He didn't mind sticking the needle in to somebody, even if they didn't know where the needle came from. He was fascinating to watch. He left very big footprints in, in, uh, in, in the Congress. Yeah, you know, I, I got to tell you, as, when I first started coming up to, to Congress and, and working Congress as, as, as a little wet behind the ears government affairs guy, uh, almost, uh, almost two decades ago, when, when I look at it, 15 years ago, I, would walk, I was walking through the halls of Rayburn. And as I was walking through the halls of Rayburn, there comes this big barreling voice I hear, and the person I'm with looks at me and goes, 
That's Chairman Dingle. And I remember seeing him and hearing him for the first time. The initial, as a government affairs person, is to go over and say, hey, Mr. Chairman, I'm Justin Russell. It's nice to meet you. I represent so-and-so. My, 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 that would be the right thing. The absolute initial effect on me was, oh, crap. I can't talk to him. That's John Dingle. I mean, he, he, he's got this presence that you can feel through the halls of Rayburn where he's been sitting for decades. He owns that building, Congressman. Yes, I, I, I think he might in some ways. He, he used to. He, uh, he, yeah. He, but but another example is that he was famed for taking on the oil companies and the 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 big business and what have you when they were doing wrong things he also went after colleges now he was a liberal you know and you don't do that well the colleges some colleges were off really playing fast and loose with federal monies and what have you and he had a series of hearings and then passed legislation, and he had the liberals all upset. He's, he's become anti-intellectual, you know, which totally absurd. But but he he took on people who were the evil doers, whoever they were, and he treated them fairly. But uh, fairly sometimes meant get out of my office. <laughs> and 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 take this piece of legislation and like it. Well, you know, it's it's funny, Congressman Al, John Dingell came in after the untimely death of his father, who had served in the House himself for over 20 years. Uh, when you look at that, one of, the, one of the notable functions that his father did as a congressman, the, the uh, senior Congressman Dingell, was that he was almost one of the founding fathers of universal health care at the same time. That seems to have been a platform that current Congressman John Dingell has taken over his 59-year career. When we interviewed him, when we asked him what he thought his legacy would be, it wasn't his alliance with Detroit or with the automakers or keeping the automakers fluid. He was really proud of the possibility of universal health care being a staple in the U.S. He, he introduced a bill for universal health care every year that he was a member of the Congress and it was essentially his father's bill. Uh, his father got uh, laid the groundwork for Medicare and all of those things, but uh, he, he felt very strongly about that. He was also enormously proud of uh, his 1964 vote for equal opportunity, civil rights. And if you, if you can remember that period, most guys from big cities, which have large black populations, were running away from the, the civil rights and the busing you know, and all of that. And John Dingell uh, said, this is the right thing to do, and I'll figure out how to get reelected. You know, but we're going to do this, and he's he's proud of that to this day. Uh, Bob Hines, I, uh, in my position as uh, head of the Washington office of NBC, the political office, had 
many, many dealings with the chairman, Mr. Dingle. Uh, the, uh, I, can I can tell you that on many occasions, I was in his office uh, with him trying to find out how to solve some problems with respect to networks. And inevitably, inevitably, John Dingle was fair-minded, straightforward, we always knew where he was coming from. He was very open to negotiations. We had we had great successes working with him, and he was he always got what he felt he had to have. But he was never never in a situation where he would you know I never never ever felt that he was uh, he was out for us against us and trying to give us a hard time. He was always very fair, and and he was always reasonable. And he was always looking out for the public goods. And I, there were many, many times that, uh, quite frankly, we'd be, be walking out of his office and John would put his arm around me and say, I hope we can make this work. Now, you, you know, we, we, we talk around this table a lot about the days of people getting to know people and people spending time with people here in the district, not necessarily, or here in Washington, not necessarily running back to the district and making money. It, you know, you as a Republican, Bob Hines, you worked for uh, a, a fellow congressman from Michigan, thus being Gerald Ford. Yeah. Gerald Ford and John Dingell had a very interesting, unique relationship when it came to Republican and Democrats, did he not? Yeah. What, what was that relationship like, and, and how did they manage the differential, even as uh, Gerald Ford made it up to the White House? In the days of Yellow. It was a different Congress. We didn't have uh, my way or the highway people at the same degree we have, we have now. And people like Mr. Ford and people like John Dingell were, were people who wanted to solve the problem and get a solution to the problem rather than say, I stood my ground and I didn't budge an inch. And that's the difference we have today, where everybody stands up and says, I don't want to move, I want to stand right here. People like John Dingle, people like Jerry Ford, were always able to find common ground. Not totally. I mean, if you were in the majority, you were going to get uh, more than what the majority was going to get. Minority. Minority was going to get. But you were always going to be in a situation where you could find common ground and I saw it time after time, year after year, when I was on the Hill working for Mr. Ford. And Mr. Dingle was always there, and he was always the kind of a person who you could find common ground with. I mean, my relationship with John goes back to, you know, the days when I worked for Mr. Ford, and they continued during my end time with NBC. But all through those years, I never, I never ever felt that, that uh, the chairman was being anything but straightforward, was being anything but fair-minded, and he always found a way to make sure that uh, the solution that he found was the best solution for everybody. Uh, Congressman Al, go ahead. Uh, Congressman Al, you know, we, we've talked about John Dingell as the statesman. Uh, we, you know, it's been known, anybody who's listened to the show, that you had a very close personal friendship with John Dingell. Um, it, it was apparent, uh, and I, I bring this up lovingly, you know, when your wife passed away, Paula, uh, 
Yes. John Dingle was right there and made a point of being right there to support you. It, that's a testament to John Dingle, the friend, versus John Dingle, the politician. Yes. How, what was he like as a personal friend, as, as someone you got to know personally through your years in Congress and afterwards? Well, I, I, I can remember driving in a car. We, we, were, we, were, we were out at some place where I think the rules won't let you go anymore. Uh, you know, some... some, some uh, function funded by some business or other and we, we were driving along and she and his mrs dingle was driving and she began to tease him and he got kittenish now can you imagine john dingle being kittenish and he, he would say well you you you've hurt my feelings <laughs> Why, Debbie, how can you say a thing like that? <laughs> and because they, they disagreed on something on, on a lot of things. As right. a matter of fact, gun legislation was one, one of them. Right. But he would he would go through this this oh poor me, you're picking on me kind of thing. Something he would never do in public, you know. Uh, not sure he wants that out there now either. The guy's still on the hill, Al. <laughs> he probably doesn't. But it was just he was a, he was a different person and as a host in his home and he would have many parties which would include a lot of members and some lobbyists and some reporters uh, uh, I remember Nina Totenberg uh, getting down on the floor and playing with a little child that somebody had brought to the thing and he was a gracious host uh, and, and and one other thing in foreign trips, if you went with John Dingle, you had nothing to go home and be apologetic for. And he would say this. He said, look, here's what we're going to do. My suggestion is that we're going over there to do these things. I suggest you, you put out a press release and say you're going to on this trip to China, for example, we went. And... And this is why we're going to China. This is what we're looking for. And then when you get home, my suggestion is you issue a press release on what you learned when you were there. And I always followed his advice, and I never got any kickback uh, about taking a trip. He also worked our tail off. I remember once we were, we were all so tired, the ranking Republican at the time was Norm Lent. And, he, and I, for some reason, happened to be the senior Democrat after the chairman. There were a whole bunch of people in between, but they didn't come. And Norm came to me and he said, all our guys are wearing it. Can't, can we go to John and ask him to do something? And I said, well, yeah, what, what do you want to do? And he said, well, maybe we could, we could divide in half and each take half of the meetings. So we went to John, and he said, uh, "He said that makes sense. He says I, I want to be sure there's enough people there. Every I don't want to embarrass our our, our hosts." Uh, but he said, "You figure it out." Well, the Democrats decided that some would do it in the morning and some would do it in the afternoon, and the Republicans, I think, decided to do every other one. But uh, that was the way he would he would he would work with people, and you would go to these conferences, and you'd come back so enthusiastic about everything you've learned. I'd make it my my service club speech 
for about the next three months, rather than hiding the fact that I'd taken a foreign trip. He was uh, terrific. Well, we, we, we're going we're gonna to let that be the last word. Um, our, our thoughts obviously go to uh, John Dingle and his family, hopeful for a happy and relaxing retirement, long years to the chairman. And, Except and a, his wife is, may run for the seat. Well, no, actually, she's, she's John already... Will, John will be out on a street corner waving a sign. You know? <laughs> well, I didn't want to bring that up, but Politico's reporting that she's going to run. So anyway, but that being said... Uh, hopefully, hopefully, before the end of this Congress, we might be able to get them one more time. That, I think, would be the great coup we should get. Uh, but we're going to let that be the last word. We're going to forego Tell Me a Story, just not enough time. So we'll bring it back next week. But on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krep, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, Dan Lipner, special thanks to Brent Sullivan, our producer up there in Syracuse, Get your ass down here, buddy. We need you. Hey, uh, it's a family program. Oh, it's my it's my moderation. I can say what I want. This, this. Hey, so can we? Hey, hey, hey! I I will go John McLaughlin on you on the drop of a dime, people. Watch me. So, <laughs> on behalf of the roundtable, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back next week, live from Shelley's back room. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. Bob? Isn't this the place to be, by God? It is the place to be. We'll see you next week, folks. Have a great week. Bye-bye.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.